0: Tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And we're excited and honored to have a very special guest on this episode, Dana Buckler from the Dana Buckler Show is here. Dana, welcome to Strip. Tell folks a little bit about yourself and your show.
1: Well, first, Jay, Ron, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about myself, like you mentioned, my name is Dana. I am a lifelong film fan who lives uh, about uh, 45 miles north of Orlando here in beautiful, sunny Florida. Uh, I'm, a li- like I said, lifelong film fan. I started a podcast about five and a half years ago called How Was This Movie that basically did sort of deep dives into, into the history of some of the more iconic movies that have been released in the past 40 years. About six months ago, I rebranded the show to The Dana Buckler Show because I wanted to do a little bit more than just the deep dives. I mean, that's still a staple of the podcast, but I wanted to sort of expand things a little bit. For example, I started a series called The 20th Century Movie Club, which, Jay, you've been a guest on that was a great episode where we do nothing but recommend movies that were released before the year 2000 which given the subject of today's episode would fit perfectly in the 20th century movie club Um, I've also uh, continued to do the deep dives and uh, just have a lot of fun doing the show and uh, again really excited to be here guys thanks for having me
0: well, Dana, thanks again for being here. Uh, I've been a big fan of your show for a long time and really had a blast on the episode of 20th Century Movie Club I got to be a part of. So we're glad to have you here today to be a part of our October slate of thrillers and chillers and all the other stuff we like to do here at Filmstrip. And today's movie is no exception. We're going to talk about Stir of Echoes starring Kevin Bacon. Catherine Irby, Zachary David Hope, Jennifer Morrison, Connor O'Farrell, Ileana Douglas, and Kevin Dunn. Directed by David Kep, who adapted the script from a 1958 Richard Matheson novel. Released in 1999 on a budget of $12 million, grossed $21 million at the box office. Now, I have a, a pretty specific history with this film and, and you know, remember. Vividly seeing it in theaters and talk about that in a minute, but they don't want to start with you your history with stir of echoes
1: That's an interesting question because I remember 1999 fondly as one of the great years uh, of cinema period like it Just I think a lot of historians look to that year as just a, a wonderful time for original stories that were coming out in the theater I was probably going to the movies two to three times a week I didn't see this one. I had never seen this. And, you know, when you reached out to me and said, we'd love to have you on the show. or any movie you in particular you want to talk about? And I said, no, whatever you want to do, I'm game. And he said, well, how about Stir of Echoes? It, I mean, it just popped up my mind. I, I cannot believe in the past 20 years I've never seen this movie. I remember when it came out. I remember the marketing. I remember seeing the trailer. And I, I don't know if it's just because it didn't do very well that it just sort of came and went. but. Honestly, I watched this for the first time today, and so I've got plenty to say about the movie, but this one eluded me, regretfully. Ron, what about you?
2: Well, like Dana, I I remember the year 1999 fondly, not just because I graduated high school that year, but because it is a great year for movies, and this is a movie that also escaped me. Now, Holly, my wife, has seen it um, 20 or 30 times. She says but my first time viewing it was the other night through Amazon prime. So, uh, I'm excited to talk about it and it was nice to uncover something of a gem that had been hidden to me.
0: Yeah, guys, this one, when it came out in 99, the sort of short history of it is this is the movie that got buried by the sixth sense because they're so similar and in, in plot together, even though this one was in production before and was written on source material, completely different from what Shyamalan used from the sixth sense, or at least what he admits to, um, I remember when this came out, and having seen both of them in theaters, I saw the Sixth Sense and was, you know, like wow. But I I mean, not to get too spoiler heavy into that one, but I figured out what was happening in that movie about halfway through, and I was fine with it and still enjoy it. And it's a, it's probably Shyamalan's best film. It's really good. But I remember going to see this again because I'm an easy mark for Kevin Bacon. He's never let me down in anything. Even if he's been in a bad movie, he gives a good performance, and I, I just really like Kevin Bacon. I saw the trailers, said I'm into this, went and saw it, and I was was blown away. I was like, man, this is so much more of what I wanted from a movie experience than what I got from The Sixth Sense. And I remember like renting this and showing it to people. Holly may be in in one of the groups of people that I showed it to, Ron, you know, proselytizing about how this is so much better than The Sixth Sense because I was so down for this movie. And in doing a little research for it through the years, one of the funny things I found out about it was David Kep and Kevin Bacon became aware of The Sixth Sense after they had finished this movie. I think Kep had read the script and they got to see an advanced screening. They begged The studio please put our movie out in front of this one it's not going to hurt the sixth sense that's going to be a huge movie we can already tell let us you know go out in front because if you put us after we're going to look like a copycat but the studio didn't care and you know this one came out and, and was just kind of come and gone and and that was it And i think that's why a lot of people may have missed it um so i'm glad that you know I got to to get both of you in on it for the first time because that'll make it a lot of fun yeah. yeah i'd just
1: like to say if i could uh you know I did see the sixth sense in the theater and I, I will admit that I won't mention the plot twist of course, but it did get me. Uh, I had the big aha moment, but what's interesting about that film is I've never had the desire to rewatch it. And everyone says, Oh, you have to watch it a second time. Once you know the plot twist, but I, I, I didn't come out of that movie. I think loving it like everyone else does. Yeah. Jay, you mentioned that you think it's his best work. I, I'm going to lean more towards science, but I know that's a discussion for a whole, a whole nother podcast. But um, this stir of echoes, that was much different experience. I'll just say that
0: for this one, for me though, again, I, I had a, a much stronger reaction to it. And it wasn't until years later, I realized this was a book written, you know, many, many years before. Have either of you know the book or know anything about it?
1: Uh, I don't. This was a movie I hadn't seen. Uh, so I didn't even do any, any background research on it until after you had mentioned it to me. And by the time I realized that it was based off a book, uh, the, the window for me to be able to read that had closed. So no, I was not familiar, but very interested in hearing
2: about it. I'm familiar most of with Richard Matheson through, you know, twilight zone and uh, I am legend and that kind of stuff. And I did read I am legend, but I have not read this book, but I will go back and, and check it out for sure.
0: I picked it up from the local library because I found out it was only 220 pages. And I thought, I, I bet I can rip through this pretty fast. Um, I will say this and not to spoil the book, the, the events of this movie are kind of the broad strokes and 40 years forward from a, from that book. But a lot of the book experience is is very different. And, but the basics are the same and we'll get into, you know, what the plot is here in a minute. Um, I think it's interesting to visit as kind of a one-off. I almost wonder if it would be better as an audio book versus reading it. Cause sometimes reading it, it was just like, I really don't want to hear about your sandwiches you know, and things like that. Like there's lots of that <laughs> kind of stuff in it. Uh, but, It's, it's okay. You have to, you know, I have to take off my 21st century, you know, mindset to read a book from the 50s because it's got very different sensibilities. The female characters are very different. One of them is a completely different person than the, the wife in, in the movie here. And, um, the antagonist is all different. The, the, Plot's different, uh, but the basic idea of somebody who gets hypnotized and uh, now becomes a telepath in some ways is the same. And so I can see why this would be ripe for adaptation. Lots of methods and stuff has been adapted. Ron, you mentioned Twilight Zone and I Am Legend. Whether, how many I Am Legend movies are there or versions of that? And there's several of them. And uh, several of his other works have been adapted, some better than others, I, w- I would say. But he's an intriguing writer. And, and as somebody, again, who likes good sci-fi writing and has read a lot of Philip K. Dick and stuff, I've read some Matheson. So it was fun to go back and visit it. And if you like that kind of stuff, this is definitely worth a read. Um, but I don't think you can really compare what happens in the book to the movie other than just in the broad sense of things. So I would just say that as sort of a disclaimer for the the readers out there that want to get into it.
1: I like what you said about, you know, the audiobook because that's really how I consume books these days. So that's a great recommendation.
2: Well, you mentioned Jay that there's a big dif- there are differences between the book and between the movie and you've talked a little bit about uh some of the differences in the book. Why don't you go ahead and hit us with the plot of the movie?
0: All right. Working class family man Tom is a hardworking fellow who just wants to provide for his growing family and still achieve some of his own dreams. Because he's so focused on taking care of those he loves, Tom rarely relaxes at all. This leads his sister-in-law to give him a hypnotic suggestion at a party to open his mind a bit. However, this unlocks Tom's ability to have psychic visions and connections with people in the past, an ability he also learns his young son possesses. Tom starts seeing visions of a young girl who's murdered named Samantha, and he becomes obsessed with learning the truth of what happened to her. The more... Uh, the more he lets Samantha in, the more unhinged he becomes, going as far as to dig up the floor and the entire outside of his house, into the kitchen. And it's there he discovers Samantha's entombed body and learns that the son of his landlord, Harry, and son of his best friend, Frank, Adam, who earlier tried to kill himself, attacked and murdered Samantha not long before Tom and his family moved into that house. Harry and his son show up to take out Tom, but Frank, Frank intervenes and guns down the assailants. Tom sees Samantha's ghost walk away, seemingly satisfied that her spirit can now be at rest. And Tom and his family drive away, Tom's son covers his ears so he cannot hear the many spirits calling to him from all the houses as they head out of the neighborhood. And that's kind of the, that's the quick plot summary of A Stir of Echoes. You have this hardworking guy, kind of a no-nonsense fellow, which Kevin Bacon, as the everyman, seems as most on the nose casting as you can get. Because from the mid-90s through the 2000s, that was kind of his world. And I, and I was down for all of it. Like I said, I'm an easy mark for Kevin Bacon, and I, I want to see what he's you know going to do. And you, you get a lot of mixed stuff in here. I mean, you've got the working family. You know, his wife works, too. They've got a kid. They've got another one on the way, allegedly. Not by the way Catherine Irby looks, but, you know, whatever. We'll go with that. And you've got her kind of, I don't know, spiritualist new age sister who she refers to as a witch, but, you know, would be... yeah offended by that who does hypnosis on him and uh, all of all the craziness that ensues within plus you've got the whole chicago neighborhood thing going on which that's the thing about this movie that i remembered most i remembered almost all of it takes place on like one block and really between a couple of houses
1: yeah and can i just say you know one of the things i wrote down in my notes is What a fantastic block to live on. Like, they're always having parties. They're going to sporting events. Everybody's drinking beer all the time. And I mean, I'm just saying this kind of jokingly around, but I was like, what a great little neighborhood to live in. I I just thought that was terrific.
0: I mean, Kevin Dunn says it. This is a good neighborhood. So, you know, like he's he's I don't know if he's the HOA president or if he just takes a lot of pride in where he lives, but. I I got that too and it's it is it's something that I've always thought about I'm like man it would be neat to live in a neighborhood like that cuz when I've lived in neighborhoods or you know, the apartment complex I live in now I don't know who my neighbors are and I don't want to you know like I don't hang out with these people and this is a a different time for sure even though it's just 20 years ago
2: it's funny you said that cuz I just literally met my next door neighbors officially f- for the first time uh after about I think she's lived here three years. I was outside <laughs> cutting limbs off of a tree in my front yard, <laughs> and she came over and said hi. And it's been, and literally I've lived here every day she's been here.
0: <laughs> wow! Yeah, see, it's it's a different time, right? Because we don't have cellular technology in this movie in a big way. It's, it's barely even there, if at all. Tom works as a telephone lineman you know, which is a different world. You know, nowadays he'd be doing different kind of electrical work, right? And I don't know, it's it's a different, it's only 20 years ago, but it seems like a time that is long gone from America. It's almost like watching something from the fifties when I was a kid.
1: But it's so interesting because it's something that the three of us, I think can all relate to because we were all, you know, very much cognizant of what was going on back then and i I, I mean I look back in at in 99 I was 21 years old and I, just, I still didn't have a cell phone and I just I still remember that and it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. but my goodness, you're right, Jay, so much has changed in that time period.
0: Yeah, The one thing I was most amazed about about the tech in this is they go to a party across the street and Tom takes his baby monitor and just sticks it in his pocket. And I'm like, did those things have that kind of range on them? And is that safe (laughs) for the kid? I mean, Ron, you've got a kid now, so tell me.
2: Uh, Our baby monitor monitor, monitors can supposedly reach 500 feet. Um, So I I think if if, uh, the baby's room or if the kid's room was near the front of the house, it should be able to reach across the street. Um, it, it is it is a very uh, high strength baby monitor. I will have to say that. But there was also a lot less interference from cell phones and the like, So you True. didn't have to worry about overhearing somebody ordering dominoes across the street.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, good grief. The babysitter, like, reads a book. She reads a Richard Matheson book, by the way. But she's reading a book. She's not even watching television. I was like, what What child are you? And I was like, oh, wait a minute. You would have been, like, my friends. Because I, I was out of college by 99, but I still had friends that were in that same age range. I'm like, oh, yeah. We Sometimes the television was never on, and we would sit around with each other for hours. Can you imagine that day? Uh, but uh, anyway. So we, we meet our characters here, and I mean, our our main focus here is going to be Tom, but I wanted to talk about the, the other members of the family that we meet from him, specifically his wife, Maggie. Now, I watched Catherine Irby for decades on Law & Order Criminal Intent and just loved her. I thought her and Vincent D'Onofrio had such good chemistry together and to have never been romantically involved. They were just work partners. They were. She was such a good character on that show. And I remember when I saw her show up on Criminal Intent, I was like, it's the wife from, you know, Stir of Echoes. And everybody else was like, what? And so, you know, I, I think I'm the only one that knows she did this besides her.
2: <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned her being on Law & Order Criminal Intent, which I've never seen. The moment I saw her pop up in this movie, I was like, "Oh my god, that's the daughter from What About Bob?" Wow. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's a
0: deep pull, man. Good good work.
2: <laughs> speaking of movies I've seen 30 times, What About Bob is a is an HBO classic.
0: <laughs> yeah, speaking of a movie I've never seen, there we go. We'll throw that out there. So.
1: Wow. <laughs> well, I'll say this about about her is, you know, you're mentioning Law & Order: Criminal Intent. That's the only law and order show I never watched and I oh now now I've got to watch it.
0: It's it's worth checking out. Yeah, if you've never seen Criminal Intent. It's it's very very good. I knew her of course for later work, but this was the first time I'd ever seen her in anything I haven't seen what about Bob like I, I admitted to there. But can I tell you how much I really like Maggie as a character? Even for 1999, she's she's a smart ass. Um, She gives as good as she gets from Tom, but she very much is a, an understanding partner. And you can tell these two have a good relationship, even though the relationship's going to get frayed by part of what's going on. And it, you know, maybe it, it had its ups and downs, but they are definitely in this together. And she plays that so well. And at some point she, I mean, she takes over and goes to find out more information to try to figure out what she can do to one, get, into the circle that her and her you know, son and her husband now have with these psychic abilities, but also so she can help them because she's seeing what it does to him. And I don't know. I, I liked her and I I liked her banter back and forth with Eliana Douglas, the, the Lisa character.
1: Well, I'd like to say that about Maggie and it's something that I picked up very early on in the film before all the supernatural elements start to happen is kind of echo what you said there, Jay is this is a woman who deeply loves her husband and he from what i what I was able to gather, and to mind you i 've only seen the film one time, but you know he 's you know he 's a line man it 's kind of that blue collar job and there 's sort of a reference to the fact that he at one point was a musician, and the movie opens up with him playing guitar with his son i mean he 's in the background playing guitar, but you know he says to her you know i 'm not always going to be a line man, and but she 's okay with that, like she loves him no matter what." And that was the energy that I picked up from her right, I, again, before anything crazy starts to happen in the film. So I, I thought she was just a delightful character.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed her performance and I really enjoyed that character because, you know, like Dana said, it's very much, it, it's very much not a one-note put-upon mom type and she's definitely not the, you know, scared of ghosts cowering in the corner type that you see in a lot of these movies. She's very much a um, kind of a no-nonsense, like, tough character, and I think that Maggie's relationship with Tom really felt like a legitimate relationship to me.
0: Yeah, they felt very real. Like, they weren't overly affectionate with each other. They also weren't, like, immediately distant from each other. They were just making it work. They were like a lot of... You know couples that I know and and knew then and know now who they just do their thing and they just make it work and it just kind of comes together. I mean, I I thought she had such a good charisma though, and that's the thing. Catherine Irby is actually really funny when she gets to be kind of smart alecky and sly, and she gets several moments in the movie to do that here. And I don't know, I I dug her. I I thought she is a fun entry point to watch if you're not into Kevin Bacon necessarily, baby. She's a good one to enjoy, and then you counter her with the always fun energy of, uh, Eliana Douglas who I, I've got to admit guys for years, I would confuse her with Allison Janney and Tony Collette. Like all the time, they could be separated at you know, birth
2: triplets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a, that's a really good point. And I, I think that she, um, Catherine Irby is a great, like counterpoint to Kevin Bacon. Because for me, when I look at Kevin Bacon, and I said this to my wife last night, I look, I look at Kevin Bacon, and I see kind of charming sleazebag. bag. <laughs> yeah, like he's a he's a he's a kind of good dude, but like he's going to stay out a little bit too much. He's going to drink a little bit too much. He's going to, you know, he's going to be in then be in that bar band until he's forty five. You know, wearing too tight jeans on stage. He's one of those dudes, and she. Uh she seems both very kind of supportive, but not necessarily indulgent of his is lesser behaviors. It's like she understands that he's got to go out and and let his hair down a little bit. But she also knows he's going to be up bright and early uh, working on the line the next morning.
1: Tom is the kind of character that that's perfect description, you know, play the bar band, playing the bar band till he's 45. You realize sooner than later that he's still somebody that's going to do the right thing. And he's a good man. You know, he kind of has that sleazy kind of look to him a little bit, you know, kind of dirtbag look, rocker type look. But at the same time, he's a good person. And you you get that early on. And I really like that. And I want to say something about Kevin Bacon, Jay. And I meant to mention this when we were recording on the 20th Century Movie Club. Kevin Bacon is one of those actors that I've I never get excited like, oh, let's go see the new Kevin Bacon film until I see the movie. And I'm like, why didn't I go see that sooner? Like he's it's one of those weird actors that I never get excited for. But every performance I see him do is always completely incredible.
0: Yeah, the guy absolutely disappears into every role that he does, whether he's the supporting character, whether he's playing the lead bad guy and trying to drown Meryl Streep on a canoe. That's a plot <laughs> of one of the movies. I've <laughs> ever seen it. Um, there's that river wild. That's called, um, or, or if he's you know smoking grass and getting murdered by Jason Voorhees, you know, or if he's playing a lawyer opposite Tom Cruise and the JAG Corps, a few good men. I mean, the guy disappears into every role he's in, and he does that here too. Like I'm, I'm looking at Kevin Bacon. I'm like, wait a minute, bro. Fifteen years ago, you were like angry dancing in an abandoned factory because you couldn't <laughs> dance in the new town in Utah you're from, and now you're a lineman. <laughs> but that's the kind of character actor he is. And I think it speaks to his performance, the way that he can be all of these things. And you just sort of accept it that, like, yeah, I could buy Kevin Bacon, you know, being in a bar band, but also uh, being the guy that, you know, climbs the high poles every day and, and works really hard um, to provide for his family.
2: Well, after the Tremors ran him out of perfection, he needed to, he needed to <laughs> settle to a new gig. How can I forget that one? Great ideas.
0: <laughs> if Fred Ward could have been one of the neighbors, that would have just... Uh, anyway, uh, missed, <laughs> missed, missed opportunity there. But uh, No, but uh, I think we talked about... Them. I I want to get y'all's reaction on Lisa. Anything at all on her? I want to see a movie where
2: Ileana Douglas and Alana Glazer are like mom and daughter.
0: Oh, wow. That could work. Yeah.
2: <laughs> as, as like the most like sarcastic snarky fun pairing of of uh, parent and child like first for some reason they both give off a similar kind of i'm not going to take your shit energy uh for lack of a better way to put it um but yeah i really enjoyed her performance too um uh i had a lot of i had several um good laughs because of things lisa said or, or things lisa did Um, so I, I I liked her quite a bit. Um, and I jokingly told my wife, who's a massage therapist, that if we had never gotten married and she had moved to Boston, she probably would have ended up with a bunch of scented candles and and, (laughs) and that kind of, I,
0: I'm so glad you outed that because having known Holly, as long as I have, she's my oldest friend of the world. Every time I watch this, I'm like, it's Holly. Like it really is. (laughs) Like it's so much of her, uh, and and the way she says stuff, all it's funny to me that you you caught that too. So I'm glad we're we're in agreement on that.
1: I I really liked this character as well. I thought you know the whole sequence in which she hypnotizes Kevin Bacon, which by the way, shout out to the director. That was a very well done scene. But she just has she had this perfect look about her, and just the way her voice was coming across, very calm, very soothing. I thought she was excellent i if i have one one gripe about her performance is i don't think she was in the movie enough and that's my big complaint about her character and that's certainly not a complaint about her character she was wasn't in the movie enough but it's interesting because Ileana douglas has been in i don't know 30 40 movies probably 100 different tv shows but for me Whenever I think of her, I I'm immediately think of the episode in Seinfeld when she was dating George. And I'm the <laughs> diehard Seinfeld Seinfeld guy. And that's the one I always immediately think of her in that one. And she's terrific. And she's only in that one episode. But it's always the first thing I think of when I think of her. When I saw her on screen, I said, like, like, oh, Seinfeld. So yeah, that's that's always my uh, starting point for her.
0: Dana, I think it's neat that you... Think I wish there could have been more of her character in the movie because she is invented for the movie. Oh, interesting. In the book, it is a brother-in-law who dabbles in this kind of stuff, who does the hypnosis, and he completely drops out of the story about a third of the way through it. Once he does the hypnosis, he's gone, you know, and you never see him again. And so David kept rewrote it to be sister-in-law and got her and... You know, there's not a ton of behind the scenes stuff before like I could tell he was just so enamored with the way she was doing this character that he kept trying to come up with other ways to put her back in the plot. But at some point it becomes very much about Tom and Maggie and, and Jake and and needs to kind of there's nowhere else for her to be. So she has a late scene where she watches the kid while Maggie has to drive back home for uh, to try to you know rescue her husband, not knowing that's what she's doing at the time. But I, I agree. I mean, she's so neat. And I'll tell you what brought this movie back to my mind, because it's been a number of years since I saw it until a couple of years ago. And I'm watching Get Out and I'm watching Catherine Keener sit there with that spoon and just hypnotize, you know, people. And I'm going, that's like this, you know, stir of echoes. And I, I immediately went and you know, grabbed my DVD. I felt like Kevin Bacon going through my CDs there for a second. <laughs> and I grabbed my DVD and I like, watched it. Then and I was like, oh, man, somehow we're going to get this back on the schedule some way. And so I'm glad to you know, be able to do it here. But, yeah, she's a character that in the book, she's adapted from something completely different and falls out of the, the movie about the same time that the character falls out of the book, though she gets to come back later. So I, I think you you mentioned the day and we'll talk about that hypnosis scene in a minute. But I, David Kep is a young filmmaker at this point. In his career. And he's got such command of the camera and in letting you into the story. I mean, we drop right into the story immediately. I mean, the kid gets out of the bathtub and he's having a conversation with a dead person that you don't know that's happening until you've seen the movie once through, but he's standing there in a the towel going, does it hurt to be dead? And I'm going like, man, where did you find this Danny Torrance lookalike kid to do that? Cause mm. this kid is creepy.
1: Yeah. And, and, and by the way, great child actor. I mean, he is really good. I mean, Uh, yeah, right off the bat. And again, like I said, watching this film for the first time today. So I, I'm watching the scene going, who is he talking to? And then as soon as he said, you know, does it hurt to be dead? That's when I kind of had the aha moment. Okay. This is a supernatural film because I didn't know anything about the movie. So yeah, great opening scene with him.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's funny because looking over, um, David Kipps, uh, director filmography, he did one of my favorite movies of 2012 which is the Joseph, Gordon, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt um, bicycle messenger crime slash being chased around by uh, Michael Shannon or Michael Sheen. I get them confused, as I've told Jay numerous times. He's being chased <laughs> around by the scariest, the scarier of the two, uh, Premium Rush.
1: I have not seen that movie. I've heard great things. It's going on the short list.
2: It's definitely worth checking out because – A lot of the the command of scene and um the command of setting that he he has in stir of echoes only improves with time when he gets to premium rush because stir of echoes has a very that neighborhood feels very familiar even though i've never been to that side of chicago and and premium rush it does a great job of kind of putting you in the cleats of a bike messenger on the streets of new york um it's it's very different in terms of you know what you're making the camera do and how you're shooting and that kind of thing but at the at the same time it it's the it captures a feel that i think is what makes what makes that movie work and what also makes Stir of echoes work because he's not over reliant on you know uh, any kind of tricky uh, photo- uh tricky camera photography or tricky setting and staging it's it's just a very clear telling of the the general plot and he saves the the cool trickery stuff for uh you know like um kevin bacon's various hallucinations and the hypnosis scene like he deploys it at at great places to get a little wild with things
1: i 'd like to say that if we 're if we 're talking about Kep just for a moment, and i don 't think it 's by mistake that one of the things I was seeing today when I was watching the movie, just from the way he was framing a lot of the shots and, and this is not really to not so much the the, the special effect shots or the, the, like the, to use your term, that sort of the camera trickery that he used, but some of just the basic, the way he framed some of his shots and some of the, the monologues that happened, I would notice a lot of these very slow zoom ins, which I thought were very Spielberg esque. And I don't think it's by mistake when you look at, you know, how much he's worked with Spielberg in the past I think he certainly drew a lot of inspiration on how to frame some of his shots from Spielberg. And that's a compliment because I thought they looked fantastic in this film.
0: I'm glad you guys brought it up because Spielberg is one. And then there's another S director that is certainly he is taking from here. And it's Stanley Kubrick and specifically The Shining. And I wrote in my notes and and you guys saw it on the doc that we shared. There's a lot of shining in this movie. And, and David Kep has even admitted like, yeah, I, you know, I went to that well because the source material was such that we needed to update it a little bit. But I felt like a lot of what was happening to Tom is similar to what happens to Jack Nicholson's character in the, in the Kubrick movie. And you can, if you, you know, hadn't thought of that before, watch this movie now with that in the back of your head and you'll see so many like shining things.
1: That was definitely a theme that I picked up. I, I, you know, not to jump ahead, but there's a scene where he's in the backyard and, that was interesting because I, I really maybe want to say this till we get to that scene, but I was wondering if he was, if uh, if Tom was going to make that transition like in The Shining. That was the big question I had watching the movie.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely think it is there, and it's something to to look at. But we we meet our neighborhood here. I mean, we get that great opening scene. Jake is talking to the dead person. We meet our family dynamic immediately. You know, and I I mean I love. Ileana Douglas has the great opening line, you know, you knocked at my sister again, loser, you know? And he he looks at her like, well, you told her before you told me. And you can see the, I mean, you have the whole set of that household and that family set up in, you know, 90 seconds. And then they walk across the street for the, the, you know, the big party, right? And you get, Kevin Dunn has that great line, in this neighborhood, we take care of each other. And I'm like, writing that one down because that's going to come back, obviously, later. I mean, it is, Back to the Future screen screen writing one hundred and one. We got to drop that right in the beginning.
2: It's definitely a really efficient way to establish this world that we're in and to establish all these characters right away. Because I might not have remembered some of the names of some of the friends, but like I recognized them. Hey, that's that guy from that party. Hey, that's that football kid. Yeah, you know, I didn't remember, for example, Alex's name because I'm, I'm terrible at that game. But um, I, I, they were established. The the people and what their relationships to the others were established really crisply almost immediately.
1: What What's interesting, you, you know, I watched this when I was watching this today, especially with this party scene and, and Kevin Dunn, who I think is just a, a terrific character actor. I was a little bit concerned because this movie was 20 years old and he wasn't as established that he might have just been a one and done scene at this party just to help establish what type of neighborhood this is. I was thankfully my assumptions were incorrect, but uh, that just goes to show you like how old this movie was that I was like, oh, man, that's Kevin Donna. Is he going to be in this? I hope so. But, you know, he wasn't that big back then.
0: Yes, one of those first things and he becomes a very integral part. And again, this is another character that. Basically created from Kep. It's not in the book. So I can hint to those things as we go through it. I think the big thing we got to get to here, though, is is where Tom gets hypnotized. Right. And everything that happens because of that. And you already called it out, Dana. The hypnosis scene is fantastic. The visuals of the theater and, you know, imagine words on the screen and then the way he wakes out of it with that head in the bag and seeing that front porch flashback. And then they have to tell him like all of the crazy stuff that they did to him while he was under hypnosis. I mean, it uh, Kevin Bacon sells the scene though, because he looks like somebody who's choking to death and doesn't know it.
1: What was great about this is because like you just mentioned, Jay, they tell him all the things that happened to him while he was under, but we didn't see that happen. So we're really in Kevin Bacon's head. We're really in Tom's head going, is that real? Did that really happen? They're talking about sticking safety pins through his hands and things like that, And but we don't see it right away. And so we don't even know how long he's been under. It was such, that was the, that was the tipping point for me in this movie, like, all right, I'm all in. I can't wait to see where this story goes.
2: Yeah, definitely. For me, it's hard to believably come across as being very confused and i think he does a great job at absorbing the information that they that you know the other people at the party tell him he said the things they say he did and him slowly buying into it for for lack of a better phrase
0: yeah, that whole bit about where she says, you know, I, I stuck a safety pin through your hand and told you to bleed on one side and not the other. And we get that flash of that happening, which is just a jump moment for me because pins and hands, I don't, I don't do that. Uh, actually, like, I watched heads chopped off all day, but that kind of stuff, like, no. <laughs> um, and so that, but it, it is the fact that generally the rule in movies is show don't tell unless you've got the right kind of actors. To sell that dialogue and them telling him all of it and his reactions to it being supremely confused, like you said, Rod, sell that whole dynamic and the drama of everything that's happened to him. Jay, I'm going to
1: ask you this question because this is the first time I saw the movie and I have lots of questions. I I like to say that in this particular case, when we're talking about this movies, I think I'm going to have more questions than I'm going to have answers because I've only seen this film one time. Um, throughout the course of him being hypnotized or when he has his episodes, as we'll call them, he comes out of that state incredibly thirsty. And that was the first kind of head scratcher for me. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: I can only tell you what is in the book and that kept decided to not over explain just to make it part of the thing in the book, the spirits that are haunting Tom or maybe talking to him one of their ways to motivate him is they have to do things to him that make him physically uncomfortable. And they have a way of the way it was described. It's something like they can dry all the air out of the room, just around your space. It's almost like they're haunting inside of you or something. I don't know, I, It wasn't terribly clear, but kept and bacon said they, they kept that in because they needed something for him to have a physical reaction to in the, the post opening of his mind and that now that he had basically made a connection to Samantha and the, and the reason so is she was murdered in his house So and he doesn't know that yet. So she, Sort of hears his mind, you know, beaming out to her in the spirit world and she latches on to him. And part of her latching on to him is to make him constantly thirsty so that she can wear him down physically. Because if you can wear somebody down physically, they're more open to listening to the spirit world, not only seeing it, but also listening to it.
1: That makes perfect sense. I I will just say that uh, you know, there have been many times when I've been very thirsty. And, and the last thing I think of is to reach for a beer, which he does a couple times in this one. But <laughs> right. that's yeah, just a,
0: yeah. just
2: an observation.
0: Yeah, just go the other way when you do that. But
2: <laughs> It, it kind of ties into some stuff we see um, Samantha doing later to try and get him to go down into the basement. Mm hmm. For example, when he's outside, uh, later in the movie, we see him outside digging and he's spraying the hose into the dirt to soften the dirt and make it easier to shovel out. We see him have all kinds of problems with the water. Uh, when Maggie is upstairs getting ready for her bath, we see Samantha go into the tub, basically, and the water turns ice cold. And the first thing Maggie does, is she goes downstairs and tells Tom to go check the uh, the pilot light on the water heater. So you kind of see um, the Samantha spirit manipulating the physical environment to try to drive anyone she can or as many people as she can into the basement in the hopes that they'll find the wall that she's hidden behind. That is so on point. That is
1: so on point. I just As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, that is absolutely correct. That's a great observation.
0: There's that part, too, where he's having a vision and his breath is cold. Every time he has visions back to that day, it was a cold day outside. So when she's inside and then gets attacked, it's cold. Everything is cold. So not only is the spirit world cold, but specifically for Samantha, she died on a cold day. She got stuck in a cold place. So the fact that she can make everything around her really cold and dry makes sense.
2: And having worked in my very old house in winter, I can tell you that no amount of central heat will actually make it warm, especially in the dead of winter. Like it it looks like her attack took place in, you know, late fall, early winter. And I know in my house, which is uh, about the same age as the house that uh, Tom and Al are living in, it gets very cold.
0: It's also another callback, I think, to the shining and the fact that, you know, the overlook, the, the overlook hotel is very cold and there's, there's all this coldness, but it's, it's such a, it's such a contrast though to the way the scenes are designed. Because if you look at that house, that looks like people live there. You know, a lot of times you watch a movie ride right, and you can tell like, mm, that's a nice set. Nobody would ever live in that. That looks like a house that people live in. It's just we're dropped in the middle of it, and you see how warm and inviting everything in the house is, and it's all these warm colors. But he's constantly thirsty. It's cold. There's all that kind of contrast. I, I think that's a, a nice touch by the filmmaker.
1: Bit of a nod to uh, the Amityville Horror. I look ah. back when uh, when uh, when Brolin's character he can't he no matter what he does he can't get warm. He's always by the fire, and I, I just I just a, got a couple nods from that one as well.
0: Good point. I mean, that what I love, too, though, is we get that kid, again, we, we've already called out Zachary David Hope, good child actor. A lot of times you wonder, like, do kids even know that are in horror movies, and I don't know what they told this kid, but he is so good. He comes over there to Kevin Bacon as Bacon's having freakouts, and he's like, don't be afraid of it, Daddy, and he, like, does the Vulcan mind meld on his face or whatever, and I was like, mm-hmm. one, that is really cute, but two, it's like, ooh, that is really scary, but as... The mind of a child is he doesn't know he's supposed to be afraid of it, so he's not. And I got to thinking about that. I was like, you know, you you learn fear. You're not born with it. And he hasn't learned to be afraid of ghosts yet, even though his mom won't let him watch, you know, The Mummy.
1: Yeah, that's no, it's an interesting, very interesting point.
2: And it, and it ties back into the whole reason why Tom is hypnotized in the first place. Lisa wants him to be more open-minded and nobody's really as open-minded as a child.
0: Right. And we get a little bit more revealed, you know, Tom tells Maggie what's going on and that, you know, he's having dreams. She's like, did you screw her? And he's like, no, you jealous? You know, <laughs> they, they have that whole back and forth, which again is just more of the character between those two that they have fun. And that's when he, he does that bit about, you know, I'm not always going to be a lineman. And she's like, that's okay. I thought your butt looked good in those jeans anyway, you know, <laughs> and she's got to, that's the kind of smart ass thing like my wife would say. And I I appreciated that, you know, so it's that kind of humor that I can get because it makes it so real, but he, you know, he's, don't work in his line he calls up lisa of course it's the middle of the day and she's asleep so you know, it's the, the standard trope right and she admits to well i just wanted you to be more open-minded and so he tells her what's going on so he's now receiving all these messages right and we also see how open and receptive jake is because mom's trying to hunt a babysitter at the last minute and he goes who and then he turns around and says called debbie you know, or find find <laughs> Debbie, and I'm and she's like, "Who told you about Debbie, Samantha?" And she just plays it off like, "No big deal, right?" And I'm like, "Ooh, this is. I mean, if you've seen the movie more than once, you realize like Samantha's sitting there telling him like, "Get my sister over here."
1: No, and that's interesting. A uh, couple things I just want to touch on. Can we uh, just right before we get to the scene where it's the next day? There's one thing I want to say about this movie that I think the movie does really, really well, and that is effective jump scares at a very minimal amount. Mm. And that that just sort of happens that first night that Tom's going through basically the psychosis after he's been hypnotized, Uh, bringing it back to when he's making the phone call. I just I love this this sort of a reference to what you said earlier about the, the lack of technology that he's actually making the phone call from. Up, up in the bucket truck with, you know, however they used to make those phone calls with those little uh, phones they could hook up to the wires and just make place the call that way. I thought that was <laughs> really interesting. Not something I don't think we ever see again today. Uh, again, this is a movie that I, I, I'm desperate to watch again because all the pieces are just start, starting to fit together for me after seeing it the first time. So uh, I, I just... I love how this sort of just the movie, it just gives us a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And I think that Ileana Douglas's character, I think even she is a little freaked out by what she accomplished through the hypnosis when Tom's talking to her on the phone.
0: Yeah. 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 I, 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 go ahead. Go ahead, Ron.
2: <laughs> I mean, she stuck a pin in his hand and he didn't wake up. That's pretty, that's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, and then the next day to to finally cop to, well, I just wanted you to be a little more open-minded, Tom. You know, I just wanted you to kind of broaden your horizons. And I'm like, "Mm, maybe being closed-minded is not a bad thing, So (laughs) at least for this guy. But, you know, we we didn't talk about it, though. We've got to talk about one of the visions he has happens to him in the middle of him and his wife in bed together, and he goes to the bathroom and he pulls his tooth out of his face. And I'm like, oh,
1: yeah. Listen, this is the first part where I'm going to admit to you that I watched this uh, through my Xbox, and they have a skip-ahead 30-second button, <laughs> and I'm going to admit to you both that when I, I saw what was going on, I said, nope, 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 and I hit the skip-ahead 30-second button, so I couldn't even finish that scene. That's how much that little bit got to me.
2: For for me, it wasn't the tooth part, although the tooth part is horrifying. It was the the broken finger slash broken-off fingernail part. Oh, yeah. Oh, that yeah. we see later that that really horrified me
0: yeah shuntings uh, and eyes and teeth and pins through skin just uh, count me out i'm done yeah like, no yeah, yeah. again chop through head all day that no <laughs> I, I cannot i <laughs> cannot abide that kind of stuff but uh, again i've seen it, I knew it was coming but all these things are clues right i mean again this yeah. this script is incredibly tight everything is clues and i want to say again this is all kept Because none of this is in the book. The book's all from Tom's point of view, and you see him kind of figure stuff out. But it was also written in 1958 when you couldn't do this kind of stuff. And so there's none of that kind of thing going on. I mean, he sees some flashes of, like, murder and stuff, but it's not grotesque. It's not described in any specific way. So to drop these things in, you have all this family drama and a little bit of humor going on. And then you're automatically brought back into terror and just chills and and stuff like that going on. I do have to say, though, there's something that dates this movie incredibly, besides the lack of technology that we've we've talked about a few times. When Tom gets ready to go with Maggie to the football game on Friday night and Debbie shows up at the door, he has that sort of read out. And he, he'll have that multiple times throughout the, the next five or six minutes. And I'm like, man, that is a camera's trick that it was done 20 years before and has since been left behind.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Effect- effective, though.
2: Still effective. But you're right.
0: Yeah, it definitely works. It It just it's just something that you look at and you're like, Oh, I remember when we used to do that in shows and movies.
2: I think they need to bring it back. I think it's been long enough. I think we could bring it back. And remember, this was shot on film. So this is a completely
1: so that effect was done on film.
0: Yeah, that's what makes it it cool is the what the links they had to go through to to expose it to make it look like that. I mean, I don't know a lot about photography, but when I worked in journalism close with photographers and they would show you like how to do all this stuff. And I'm watching that. I'm going like, ah, oh, it's just, it's a photograph trick. And again, it's something that in a different time we did more of. Now you'd press a button on after effects and it would be done and it would look fake. And this looks really cool. What you get is that Tom is having a very specific reaction to these stimuli. And and what we'll learn is that Debbie is Samantha's sister, her younger sister, and she doesn't know she's dead. She just thinks she's run away. And so that's why it's like a big red light, literally flashing in his brain. Like something is wrong here.
1: This is the part, this is the, one of the big questions I have for you. And this is one of the things that I wrote down after the movies over. I wrote down, uh, questions for Jay, because I know you had seen this a few times. Uh, (laughs) So Samantha w- wants Debbie to come over. I mean, he, he yeah. she, she gets Jake to to tell mom, get Debbie to come over. Uh, you know what? Let's talk about the scene a little bit more. Cause I have a couple questions that I need answered. So we just talk a little bit more about the scene.
0: So first thing is Debbie comes over and I can only tell you what my reading of it is. I don't, I don't know. Okay. They didn't really cop to it. Bringing Debbie over because they are blood relatives. They are sisters. Having relatives in Tom's presence where he's now this open receiver somehow amps Samantha's power up a little bit so she can get him to start you know, paying closer attention to her. Because at this point, we should say he is trying to play all of this off as just, I'm just, you know, your sister kicked around in my brain and I'm freaking out, man. You know, that kind of thing. And he's trying to fight it. And he's getting weaker and weaker. And having the sister there, I think, gives Samantha a little bit of a rush of power and it allows her to get more of Tom's attention.
2: And I also think that the whole interaction that they have with Debbie, uh, specifically at the train station, gets him to stop ignoring the the strange phenomena happening in his brain and to start to connect the strange phenomena to the disappearance of Samantha. So now he's got Samantha on the brain. It, it It's only natural that Samantha, the spirit will be able to sway his actions a little bit more because now they're getting on the same wavelength, so to speak.
0: It also allows him to hear the story. Because he doesn't know who she is. He moved into the neighborhood after that happened. But presumably he knew Kevin Dunn and he knew Harry, his landlord, before through, you know, we don't know what Kevin Dunn does for a living. But you got a sense that, like, public utility worker being connected to the cops, being connected to whatever Kevin Dunn does. Like, they all knew each other from somewhere. And so that's how Tom was able to move his his family into that neighborhood. But he didn't know Samantha ahead of time. And so she's got to have some way to tell him that story. And even in 1999, she knows nobody reads frigging newspapers anymore. So let me get my sister over here and kidnap your kid. And then my mother will tell you everything that happened.
1: So I guess the question I have, and so at this point, is it to be understood that Samantha knows she's in the house, but doesn't know where she's at in the house? Like she just can't tell Jake to tell Debbie that I'm in the basement behind a brick wall. I think that's the part that was just a little bit confusing
0: for me. That is a good question. And I don't know. I don't have a good answer for it. I think she knows she died in that house and that's all she knows. And so she's trying to uh, unlock all of it in his brain. But as we'll see later, he doesn't get the full vision until he's able to actually find her. And so, and yeah. I don't know why she can't you know, tell Jake, to tell your parents i'm in the friggin basement you know i I don't know that's a good question that was the question i had as far as
1: was she supposed to be um
0: developmentally challenged that's what they play it off as i mean they use the r word and throw it around yeah someone here whatever but i never got that off jennifer morrison's performance either i just kind of got it maybe she was sort of nerdy and mousy and they took advantage of her but i i don't i didn't see anything specifically that made me think that she had a challenge of some sort ron what about
2: you Um, I've been thinking about that actually, since I watched the movie last night and I think that she might be a little slow because of the way he's able to lure her into the house, uh, so easily. And, and some of the lines he uses on her to try to get her to stick around in the house when she's ready to leave. It seems like he's taking advantage of, of, of someone who's just, um, very naive,
0: uh, so, yeah.
2: Very naive, slightly immature, just a f- just like a few years younger mentally than her, her physical age. I, I kind of took her as
0: somebody that, yeah, mentally was just behind where her physical presence was and maybe always would be, but wasn't so challenged that she couldn't still function and stuff. Though I'll tell you now, just having said all that, maybe that's why she doesn't communicate. I mean, when she talks in the movie... She sort of completes sentences, but maybe she can't really speak that well. I don't know. And it could
1: be that she doesn't, because if that is the case, then we may have answered my question as to why she doesn't just tell people she's down in the basement, because she may not even understand where she is.
0: It's a good point, because that wall is put up after... She's killed. Well, that was a false wall that got put up. I'll tell you the thing though, the guys, I've seen this movie a number of times, obviously in the last 20 years. Skin still popped up on my arms, the back of my neck when, you know, they, they have this vision, something's wrong. And, and we've done the back and forth where they, she, Debbie takes the kid away. They get the kid back. Tom has admitted to. Um, his wife, even though he denied it in front of the cops, like, that's the girl in my vision. Her sister's the girl in my visions. They go home and they're talking to their kid and w- they do that v- great voice pitch down on the actor with Jake says, no more questions for the boy, talk to me. And I'm like, oh. I mean, like the skin on my hair, on my neck just stood up just doing it right now. Like, that is one of the creepiest things in this movie. It's something I've always remembered from it. I remember in the theater, like, gripping my seats from it.
1: That was a... I mentioned the uh, thirty second skip forward. That was when I it, you did the thirty <laughs> second skip backwards, because I was like, "Did I hear that correctly?" Uh, and th- you know, that was very uh, uh, reminiscent of The Exorcist for a brief, you know, half of a second.
0: Can I confess to that? I also had like Patrick Swayze jumping into Whoopi Goldberg from Ghost. That happened too. <laughs> <laughs> so, no,
1: that was the, and, you, and you know what. I, I would have liked to have seen just a little bit more of that, but you know what that credit to the director credit to him, you know, cause you know, we're sitting there saying, I'm sitting there saying, I, I wish I had more of this character. I wish I had more of this. I would have liked to have seen that, you know, a little kid use that voice a little bit more, but the director just gives you just a taste and says, Nope, Nope, we're moving on. And I think that's brilliant.
0: It's very Kubrick. It's very Spielberg. It's like you don't have to over explain it. You just drop it in once. And then everybody knows, yeah. you know what's happening there.
2: Yeah. It's definitely a situation where, you know, you want more, but too much would be a bad thing. You know what I'm saying? Oh, like, totally. I'd, ra- uh, I'd rather want to see the, I'd rather want to hear the voice a second time than for them to go back to the voice. You know, three or four times and it, to lose all effectiveness.
0: I agree completely. And can I tell y'all for me? And this is my opinion here. That voice change moment blows icy dead people out of the water. And a
1: hundred percent as much as I 100%. like that
0: movie, but that is so much more effective and creepy.
1: One hundred percent. Definitely. Yeah.
0: So we get to see more of Tom unraveling. He starts asking people about Samantha. I mean, again, this, this neighborhood parties a lot, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's, and what I, what I caught this time that I hadn't really caught before is that Harry, the landlord is a cop. And you see these police barricades and stuff. And I'm like, so is this guy like hiring his off duty buddies to sort of block the neighborhood off so they can, you know, pour beer in the street or whatever, you know, they're doing or here. And it's funny though to watch Tom go around and start asking people about stuff and he's chewing aspirin like Tic Tacs. And Kevin Bacon is, is so good at physical performing. And I know they do it with like a makeup and stuff like that, but this is a movie that had a ton of budget and they weren't doing CGI effects on people. He looks like somebody that's been on like a four day bender and hasn't slept.
1: Yeah, and I just want to point out that uh, until you mentioned it here, I missed the part about Harry being a cop. I don't know what was going on there, but that makes his performance, uh, his character, uh, even more effective for me. Uh, I think I'll realize that on second viewing. But yeah, Kevin Kevin Bacon looks terrible by this point. I mean, just terrible. And that is, again, you just this is, it's all practical. It's all a practical look. There's nothing, there's no, I mean, he, he looks utterly horrible and that's a compliment to the character
2: yeah they do a really good job of slowly uh, devolving him physically as he gets more and more obsessed with samantha and as he gets more and more affected by the the physical manifestations of, of the things going on in his head
0: yeah it's all starting to unravel him but again we see tom's a mess and then he has a premonition the next day while he's laying on the couch you know, that Maggie's got Jake out of the house and they, you know, just kinda of getting away for a little bit. And she's already confided to her sister that like he's used up all of his sick leave. He's gotta to go to work Monday. You know, he's just all he does is sit there because he saw somebody at the sitting on the couch once and he's trying to sort of bring her back. You know, so he just keeps trying to to, you know, kick our two detail and make the, the video play again or whatever. <laughs> and so he's he's doing that and he's just laying there and he has this premonition that Frank comes over and he's like, I gotta kill you and Maggie. You know, and he starts running around the house and he goes and... Bumps into Frank's son Adam, who's the football star, that if they just give him the damn ball more, he'd you know be a Heisman trophy winner or whatever. And uh, which is every sports dad in the world, I'm just sitting there just, <laughs> yes, I love this. So and this is just such a little thing that doesn't matter. But again, as a guy who grew up in the South, I'm like, I know every one of these people, you know. <laughs> and and worked in, you know, covered high school football a lot too. Trust me, I've I've heard this story. So we we've seen this and he has a gut, and then he wakes up and he starts realizing some of this is true. My shoes are under the couch where I didn't realize I stuck him. Wow. There's a note on the door that I didn't know Maggie left me. And he goes over and he sees Adam who pulls the gun out and shoots himself in the chest. And he has to intervene on the attempted suicide. And I mean, it's it's a jarring moment in the film where you start to realize that not only can he communicate with the dead, but now Samantha and the spirit world are letting him see just a little bit into the future.
1: Yeah, and, and it's interesting because... You know, the whole discussion that that um, Kevin Dunn's character has uh, when they're walking to the football game and he's he's going on about, you know, they just have to give my son the ball. I mean, this is it uh, that's going to that really plays into the motivation later on as far as, you know, why it's so important. But we'll get to that. But that it seemed like such a throwaway line earlier on in the film. And again, I, I this is just me watching it for the first time. All of this was just confusing the hell out of me, and I just loved how it all, you know, it all makes sense at the end. But as I'm just ta- talking about sort of my first time viewing experience watching this going, all right, I'm not sure what is happening here. And I'm not understanding why the son is is trying to uh, commit suicide. So I'm just giving it from the perspective of a first time viewer at that point in the movie.
2: Yeah, I definitely didn't know. I definitely hadn't put together why the son was trying to kill himself. But for me, the thing that makes that whole scene work is when Kevin Bacon wakes up from his vision and he finds the the shoe under the couch, he mutters some little comment about uh, about it. And I don't know if you caught it, Jay.
0: No, what does he say?
2: Well, he finds the wooden shoe and he says something like that other shoe better not be under the couch. And then he goes under the couch yeah. and he sees the other shoe. And then he realizes, oh, this is I've seen this all happen before. I know what's going to happen. And that's when he he takes off uh, to go towards uh, Frank's house.
0: Yeah, he starts sort of piecing himself through the house. He goes like, you're supposed to be here, but you're not. Where am I supposed to be next? Yeah, it's, it's neat to watch him figure it out because Tom's. Our audience, i mean we're the audience we're with him at this it's his it's his movie, and in the book it's all from his point of view too, so they've kept that intact we're learning this as he learns it. Too. So if you're, if you're really confused, Dana, watching it, trust me, I've seen this movie a lot and it took me a while to figure out like, Oh, wait a minute. That's what he's getting from this. Cause it is jarring the way all these visions come in. And I, I got to say again, that's credit to, to Kep as a writer and also as a director to keep you thoroughly confused throughout act two, because that's what Tom is. He has no idea what in the hell is going on.
1: Yeah, that was what I, I was calling that the uh, the final destination moment. Yeah, you know when he when when he w- wakes up and everything is exactly how you know that vision was, and uh, I was like, oh, that, that's kind of like what they do on Final Destination.
0: God, now that you say that, he's got Devin Sawa's hair in this movie now, too. Oh, man. I'll never yeah, see that. Yeah, no, uh, oh, yeah. I'm telling you.
1: And I, th- I think this movie came out a year before, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I-, I could I could be wrong about that. I think Final Destination might have been 2000. I don't know. Final yeah. Destination
0: is a 2000s horror, horror series. And I know that because I would have brought it up on 20th Century Movie Club um, had, had it not yeah. been. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, well, he's figuring all this out as he goes through it. And that's what that's what's neat to see. And you can tell now that, like, he realizes this is a big thing that I can't just keep to myself. Right. I've got to do something with this. Tell me if I'm
1: correct here. He's motivated, I think, by this point to figure this out because he just wants this to stop. Yeah. Right? He just wants I mean, it I... to be over. Yeah. He's not he's not at this point and he's not really just looking for the body of Samantha at this point. He's just wants this to end. Is that
2: correct?
0: He doesn't even know she's been murdered at this point. He just knows right. she's exactly. missing and he keeps yeah. seeing weird
2: stuff. He he definitely seems like he just wants it to stop. He doesn't seem to be en- enjoying his his uh, version of the gift or whatever you want to call it.
0: Yes, yeah, definitely not something he is enjoying. And I think that's the, that he's not supposed to either. You know, oh, I can see into the future. What are the lottery numbers next week? No, that's not how this works. You know, and so and again we we got to keep in mind it's Samantha's control in the spirit world that is driving all of this behind the scenes. And we get next what I think is the most shining moment in the movie, honestly. Maggie and Jake are playing along in the street and they they Bump into a, a a cop's funeral in a in a graveyard, and of course Jake's like walking up there because he's probably psychically talking to everyone, and we find out he is psychically talking to the very large African American gentleman who knows his name even though he never told it to him, and he tells Maggie like, tell your husband to come on by a little bit later, and he even says something like, you know, oh those, those two are glowing pretty large. I'm like, man, that was a little little heavy there.
1: Yeah, and and can we just talk about the fact that? you know, Maggie ends up going to the address that's written down. Yeah. Can we, can we talk about that scene for a moment? Because again, this is one of these, you know, I would have liked to explore this a little bit more. I would have liked to have seen what's inside that room with all of these people that clearly have the same gift as if that's what we're calling it. And that's another one of those, the director kept just pulling back and saying, no, I'm really not going to show you what that's about.
0: It's I thought like, that was interesting. It's kind of like Whoopi Goldberg's place in Ghost when she actually can start seeing ghosts, and then she's got people lined up out the you know the door for her psychic readings and stuff. It was very much like that, except you know Maggie never gets in the door because they're adamant, like, "No, you cannot come in here."
1: It's that was I thought that was again very interesting choice by 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 Kep to do that and uh, uh, the right choice because it had me going, "No, no, no, I I want to see what's going on in
2: there." <laughs> And I think it, it's a very strong character moment. It, it really helps to establish what Maggie is all about. She's not just going to uh, stand by in, in the shadows and let Tom do all the adventure, uh, for for lack of a better way to say it. She is being protective both of her son and her husband.
0: Yes, yeah, she's an active character. And can I say again, that is something that... Tom's wife in the book is really just kind of there as the damsel in distress. She's also like eight months pregnant in the book. So she's really pregnant in this, like Maggie's just found out, apparently. And, and again, I'm I'm doing the Friday the 13th part three, Rob. I'm going like, if that woman's pregnant, like she's barely pregnant because there was some of the clothes she's wearing. Like, no, not not yet. Uh So, but not to be a, a hang on to, but I mean, honestly, I'm going like, mm, I don't know if I even needed that but the cool thing about it is that she takes ownership of the fact that she's going to go figure out what's going on because she does care about both of them and she she's also a little pissed off at the fact that they can have entire conversations with each other and she's not included.
2: Yeah. Which which was also a thing that that I enjoyed and made me laugh cuz she makes a little comment about her her son and her husband having this weird uh connection that she's not a part of. But for me what what sells it the most is that Maggie is knows that Tom is not in a place where he's right physically or mentally or emotionally, so she's not going to let him go to this uh, a psychic support group without figuring out if these people are going to do something to take advantage of him, yeah. is, is how I read it. Oh, that's good. That, yeah, that's perfect. That makes perfect sense. Can I ask
0: you guys a question now? Cause y'all fired him at me for a little bit. So, as first time viewers, I, the next things that happen are Samantha cools off the bath. She keeps changing Jake's TV back. She's get the TV running after he unplugs it. She turns the lights off on Maggie in the basement. And then she gives Tom another, you know, strong vision. I kind of read it just based on the face that Jennifer Morrison's given us that Samantha's getting a little pissed that we're not making some more progress here. And so she's yeah. decided to amp it up. Is that what y'all think? Well, I I can
1: now the problem is I've seen the whole movie now, so I was very confused about that that scene, about why specifically uh, Samantha kept changing the channel back every time he every time the boy would change the channel. He changed it back into specifically the, the movie in question that she kept changing it back to was 1968's Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. And now I can see the parallels. I think she's trying to say I'm dead, you know, by by just, you know, by the sheer fact that that's the name of the movie they're watching. So that's again, here's me. If I'm being honest, very confused, but all in.
2: I think it's all part of of Samantha's attempts to just make everyone in the household unsettled. And she wants them to dig deeper. And, And I don't think even if she could like say to the kid, Hey, they killed me. And I think I'm in the basement, but I don't know for sure. I'm not necessarily sure. um, uh, The, the young boy would, would fully understand it. He seems a little bit too young to grasp that. So I think what she did by, by making the the TV continue to go back to the scary film was to kind of uh, get the kid out of his comfort zone as well. Kind of like she's doing to Tom.
0: Yeah, I think she's wearing them all down one way or the other. I mean, she leads Maggie right up to five feet from where she is even. So maybe she can't communicate clearly anymore, like with with your words as much. But it it harkens back, though, to that previous scene where she talks through Jake and she tells them, like, just talk to me. My thought is if they had figured out what was going on, if they had just asked, like, who are you? Are you in the house using him? She could have told them everything, maybe. Yeah. But but again, they don't know what's happening, and we don't either as an audience, really. So it we're discovering this as we go forward. It's only in retrospect that you can go like, if only I had asked you know my strange speaking child some more questions, I would now <laughs> know. I would now know things. Uh, but but we don't, and it's fine because I'm down for the ride too. I like how Tom is just completely at his wits end at this point. He goes back to be unhypnotized, and he interrupts Lisa, who's been you know, smoking joints with her. Like friend or girlfriend i don't know what's going on there i don't care but clearly she inter- he interrupts something and i love how like iliana douglas has this whole moment on the couch where she's like you're just like a little extra for me right now and i can't deal with it and like, <laughs> she's using language i'm like that's how people talk today <laughs> and it was hilarious the way she's like i'm just you're gonna have to just tone it down just a little bit
1: yeah she was she was stoned out of her mind and she's just like <laughs> this is too much for me right now i can't handle this right now and he's like no no you're going to help me and what I thought was interesting about this scene is, is when they sit down and she's just, she's just, again, just stoned out of her mind and he's all fidgety. And during the first hypnotized scene, he's like, all right, let's do this. I'm going to relax. But this time he can't relax. And I, I wonder if the fact that he's just so like, his hands are shaking and he's like, all right, let's just, just get to it. Just get to it. And it almost felt like, like she skipped, skipped a couple steps during this particular hypnotic session. So that's how I sort of draw that is that she didn't go all in one because she was stoned and two, because Kevin Bacon just couldn't relax to the point where this could have been effective.
0: You've hit on it though. Is that Kevin Bacon, Tom can't relax. And she keeps trying to tell him like Tom, you're, you know he's you're alone in the theater. He's like, nope, there's somebody sitting up front. And he, she was like, no, you're alone. Like she's trying to walk him through it, and he is sprinting through it to try to get to the end. And she is no longer in control of the hypnosis, which is a a twist on how that that could work.
1: And I uh, yeah, I love the fact that when he gets out of the hypnosis, he runs. His, <laughs> this is a great line she has where he just opens up her fridge and just downs a beer. And as soon as he's finished it, she's like. Do you want a beer? Like just just a a great just a great line.
0: It's good. It's good comedy to undercut all the tension that's going on. Because again, he. I mean, that is you got to admit that of the theater hypnosis scenes, they just get more intense and more intense. And this time, Samantha screams at him, and you see the words "dig" on the screen, and it's like, oh, that's what I want you to do.
2: And that leads to me into one of the most unsettling parts of the movie, like the visions are, are scary, you know, and to watch Tom slowly devolve is scary. But when he's out there just digging in the yard, like that's when, uh, that's when the hair on my neck stands up. Cause it's like, Oh, there, there's something seriously wrong with this guy.
1: That was for me, the, the whole Jack Torrance scene, like that, this was the part where I was, you, you talk about parallels to the shining. I, I was watching this film going, you know, he's, He's going full on Jack at this point. And then that was like the big question for me was, you know, does he take this all the way and completely never come back for this? Or, you know, is he going to be the hero? Like that was that. I mean, this is the part where I'm, you know, gentlemen, at this point, I, I'm no longer laying on the couch watching this. I'm sitting up going, all right, this has really got my attention now. And he is so effective in that entire scene.
0: Yeah. I mean, he loses it on her. But doesn't get overly violent. He's just trying to like, I have to dig. What part of that do you not understand? I have to do this. And she's going, what are you digging for? And he's like, I think we both know at this point what I'm digging for. Like, you know, and like they have this whole unspoken tension between them. And yet, instead of losing her shit on him, Maggie's trying to be the calm one. You know, like. Look, I just I need you to come and talk to me about this. Just please come talk to me and don't. Let's not do this in front of our son. And even the son at some point tries to tell him to stop. You know, as they're yelling at each other. Kevin Bacon's yelling voice has always been really effective for me. He does it in you know multiple movies when he's having arguments with people, and it, it's just one of those that when he gets to that pitch, everything stops and you start paying attention. And what I think is great is that Catherine Irby gives it right back to him. You know, like she is not backing down from him at all.
2: The whole digging thing gave me a lot of echoes of the Bill Paxton movie frailty and how there's a big subplot in there when he's digging what's essentially like a torture chamber. And the whole time Kevin Bacon is digging, I'm thinking, oh, I hope nobody ends up in the bottom of that hole.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) One of the things I really liked about Maggie by this point in the movie is I think In some cases, you know, she could have been like, you're, you're, you've lost your mind. Like, this is crazy. At no point does she start to challenge him and say, no, none. what you're talking about. Couldn't possibly happen that you get back to reality because I she, I think at this, by this point knows there's something going on. Know that, that, that there's a supernatural element going on at no point. Does she question him? Like, no, you're just crazy. We're going to get you some help. Like she's I think she's still kind of standing by him because she knows as well.
0: Yeah, that's one of the coolest things that she never gives up on him. She just wants to help him through it and get them on the other side of it. And that's what she's basically saying is that, like, I mean, he says some line about like, this is the most important thing I've ever done. And he's like and she says, I think we're the most important thing you've ever done. If you just calm down a minute. You know, and she tries to recenter him, and he comes inside, and he's calmed down, and he pours orange juice for him. And I, this is another throwback. Like she gets a fax from like her brother or something. I'm like, man, home faxes? I missed that. Did I don't know if either of y'all ever had those? But holy cow, that was a throwback.
1: That wasn't a thing for me. By that point, '99, I'm pretty sure I had a an email. Or at least it was AOL.com email.
0: Yeah, I had I had an email from like school. You know, and I think I had a Yahoo email address at that point. So anyways, it was just different. But anyway, it's about her grandmother going back in the hospital and the phone rings and he has this look on his face. Kevin Bacon does this look like, "Uh oh, I know what that phone calls about, you know, and that's actually lifted from the book. It's different relationships, but it's a it's a scene that's very smart to pluck from the book that he knows the person calling is to tell her that your relative has passed away before she ever picks up the phone. And she knows it immediately when she hangs up to you. She's like, you knew this. You knew this was happening.
1: And that goes to the that again, back to just what I was saying about at this point, you know, she's not questioning whether or not he's crazy. She knows that he's really dealing with something.
0: And that was my question for y'all was, is that scene... Because it, in the book, it doesn't really lead to anything, honestly. Is that scene so that we will know why Maggie is so supportive of him? Is she now has pure evidence in her own life, beyond everything else she's already found out for herself, that he's not off his rocker? This is real.
1: Yeah, I think that's the turning point. That and the uh, refrigerator full of juice.
2: So Yeah, that that was also... Uh, that refrigerator full of orange juice was really <laughs> yeah, creepy to me, too.
0: Yeah. Also, orange juice will not hydrate you. Okay? No,
2: it won't. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I live in Florida,
1: okay? They try to push this stuff on us all the time. It's not.
2: I can just imagine Kevin Bacon out there sho- 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 shoveling dirt, sweating profusely, guzzling orange juice. His sweat just... So sticky that flies get stuck to his forehead because of I all like, the juicy sweating yeah, out.
0: every bee in the surrounding area is coming <laughs> straight for him you know, at this point. Like big flower, you know, And they're just flying at him because yes, he's just full of citrus at this point. So, uh, but yeah, I mean it is such an odd thing again, that's again sometimes like, I don't know why that's a great choice, but whatever. But this, so we see Tom just completely lose at this point. Not only is he dug up the house, he starts digging up down in the basement. He goes and gets. A jackhammer and a compressor from the Ace Hardware or whatever, and starts drilling through the the floor. And at this point, like Harry hears all this noise going on, and his son peers in through the basement window and sees what Tom is doing. So they know he's close to discovering it. And I, what I, what I really enjoyed, and I, I wrote it down in the notes. Is I was like, this is total Edgar Allan Poe right here when he breaks behind that wall, and there's her body, and we get that. Quick jump, you know, zoom in, and the the sting of the music. Do you think
2: the the earlier in the movie when he sees all the red and it and it triggers him to have his hallucinations? Do you think that's because she was wearing that red coat? Ooh, I hadn't thought about that, Ron. But that Ooh. is great. That is because because the first thing I saw when he busts through the wall, number one, I wish I could do that in my own cellar. Number two, <laughs> uh, the first thing he sees is that bright red coat. And I just thought, well, that explains why he kept seeing that red. She wanted him to look for the red. I don't know if I, that's just me. or, or Dude, don't I,
0: I'm that's, sitting here like mind-blown. That is awesome. I've never picked up on that. All these years of watching this movie, that is a great pull. Wow. I
1: have, a, I have another question before we get into the, the reveal, and that is, uh, would somebody in his condition really be able to rent a jackhammer? Or do you think that... You know, the, the rental place would be like, okay, buddy, you look like you've been speeding for four days here. What are you going to do with this jackhammer?
0: I think cash I got- solves all things. <laughs> cash solves all things. All right, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have a feeling, like, you, you look at the piece of equipment he gets to, it's not like it's in the greatest of condition, and it looks like, you know, this place will rent it out for whatever. So, sure. I mean, he walks by, like, the new ones, and he was like, they'll probably never give me that one. <laughs> Let me go to the beat-up one. Then at least I know still works, and they're not going to question anything if I tell them I'm just improving the house, you know. Because no. I mean, he has a moment later too where somebody's like, "What are you doing?" Yo, you Harry's like, "What the hell are you doing to my house?" And he's like, "Oh man, just trying to fix out that, that water main," you know. Like he plays it off so cool. So I'm like, he probably get it together enough and go like, uh, "Here's cash," <laughs> and then that's that. So.
2: Yeah, like the like the Wu Tang said, "Cash rules everything around me." <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what what happened.
2: But yeah, I, and and, and yeah. the fact that he went for the most beat up one in the store, that they're just glad to get it off the shelf. short sure. few hours. I I took it as he was renting
1: that, but you're right. He might have been purchasing. It might have been just secondhand. Yeah, good point.
0: But either way, we get that great reveal here. And that's an excellent point, Rod. I never thought about it because we do get the coat first, and then he pulls the coat off. To see the plastic bag and rips the face, you know, the, the thing open and we see the face and all that.
1: Yeah. Missing the tooth too. like every yeah. every little every all the foreshadowing that was happening at the beginning of the film. That was the big payoff for me. I was like, oh, OK, OK, now I'm now it's all coming together for me. It's all making sense. And then, of course, the vision of what happened, which was yeah, incredibly tough to watch.
0: Oh yeah. I mean he touches her hand and that's basically her way of like if you make physical contact with me, I can now show you the whole, you know, reel. And it's it is a tough three, four minutes of movie to watch. The the way she's lured into that house by these two drunken idiots and they try to take advantage of her and then they force their way through it and then they kill her. And even if they kill her by accident, they just both go into rage mode and lose it on her. And it's it's hard to watch.
1: And the the scene when you're seeing it from her point of view yeah. and it just keeps fading back and pulling back and pulling back and the image of the two boys gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I, I honestly couldn't wait for that scene to be over. That was super tough to watch. Yeah, that was almost
2: irreversible levels of uncomfortable to watch.
0: Yeah, it was definitely unsettling, but I think Kep wants you to understand that these people that you love in this neighborhood and all this, and there's going to be an explanation. I don't want you to have any confusion as to what happened, which I think is why he lets it be told from Samantha's point of view is that there's never what the dads do is one thing, but these two guys these two teenage boys that they're going to, you were covering up for them because they get their whole lives ahead of them. Yeah. Well, they did a really horrible thing and you don't just do that at random. You work up to it.
1: Speaks to Kevin Dunn's back to what he said when they were walking to the football game, you know, he's, you know, his son's going to be this big football star and you know, this, he's got this motivation to protect his son because of his entire future that, which is ahead of him. And, um, yeah God. all right
0: he's he's a white running back he's only going to be a football star at BYU okay so let's just be honest like that's not he's not going he's not going pro
2: all right so uh, they could they could convert him to fullback
0: this is true we don't use well in, in 1999 through the 2000s we did for a while you're right it's only recently we've outlawed the fullback but
2: uh, I mean LSU was still using the fullback to almost 2010
0: yeah well no they still do they, they just can't win anything with it, but that's a that's another podcast. So uh, we, we, can, we we dog LSU. <laughs> we get the creepy Edgar Allan Poe "Telltale Heart" thing behind the the wall. We get the vision. He knows what's up, and that's when Frank shows up, right with a gun in his hand. And I'm going like, is, is Frank about to you know tell us what we already know? But is he going to reveal it to us? And what I love is the way Kevin Dunn plays this off. And you're right, Dana. This is early in his career. And he just keeps giving these good performances like this. But you totally listen to this guy. And you hear the stupid things that he is coming up with excuses for. But you buy it from that character's point of view. As to this is why we had to do this.
1: Well, at at first, when he brings him down there, uh, you know, Kevin Dunn's trying to say, Oh, you can't be sure this is just a body. There's no way to to prove that that my son and his friend had anything to do with this. And then Bacon tells him, you know, well, that she's got a hold of someone's hair. And then he then there's the big reveal where he admits that he knew the whole time what was going on. It was just brilliant.
2: It's funny that you mentioned the uh, the telltale heart, because I was thinking as I watched this scene, I, I made a comment to to my wife. I said, I wonder if they put her inside the cask of Amontillado. Oh, wow. <laughs> Speaking good. of people being walled into uh, basements.
0: Yeah, very good. Yeah. I mean, you're right, too, Dana, though. There's there's the whole setup. He goes across the street to get Frank, who's grieving, you know, because his son may or may not make it. He's in the hospital. And he's like, I, I need you to know something, and I don't want you to hear it from the cops. I want you to hear it from me first. You know, again, reiterating, Tom's a good guy. You know, he's going to do what's right, but he's also going to do what's right by his friend and his neighborhood you know, pal here. And then we get the big reveal. And what I love is that Frank, you know, you think he's going to shoot uh, Tom and he doesn't do it. And Tom walks away and you hear that gunshot and we're supposed to think, well, Frank took himself out.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's exactly how, uh, yeah. You know what? To be honest with you, that one had me a little puzzled too, because was he just shooting in frustration? I mean, obviously we're going to get to uh, another big reveal. Yeah.
0: I think so. Cause he, he fires the gun off once and, yeah, To scare Tom. And then he does it again. So that's supposed to have set up that he would just shoot just to be. I mean, honestly, I kind of was like, did he shoot Samantha's corpse? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. You
2: know, I thought he might've shot Samantha's corpse to try to take some of the suspicion off of his own son.
0: Uh, maybe so. Wow. Uh-huh. They, would,
2: they would be able to trace that bullet back to him, obviously. Right. But I don't know if that was why, but, but he may have just shot the corpse.
0: Yeah, or yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I like your idea better, Ron, that he does it. I'm glad we don't get to see it because we don't know. But the, the whole point of it is we think he shot himself so yeah. that he's out of the picture. So that when Harry and his son show up, and at this point we need to mention Maggie has called her husband at home. And be like, is everything okay? And he's like, yeah, everything's great. And, like, the entire house is destroyed. So he's like, well, not going to be explaining this one. So, so anybody ever been in that moment? I've had that moment before. I'm like, well, i just going to try to minimize the damage before Rachel walks in the door. You know, <laughs> or whatever. And so, um anyway, so he hangs up the phone. And she's like, okay, Jake, we got to go. And he's like, I don't want to. I'm scared of the feathers. And we'll see what that means in a little bit. Because uh, it's really foreshadowing and funny, but that's you know he gets to stay behind, Maggie's running you know, home gonna honk the horn, come out, and you' know, I'll, I'll take you with me wherever they're across the city or whatever and that's when Harry and his son show up, and you know like this is going bad because Harry's got the bottle of half empty fireball and he tosses it to his kid, and I'm like oh well we're we're making poor choices tonight, boys and this, this is going <laughs> this this is going bad. so now my uh,
2: now was the did he have that, that pint of liquor? To, did he throw it to his son to try to get him both a little bit of liquid courage before they did the thing that they I, know they have to do?
0: I think that's exactly it. I think it's also to show Tom, like, we're not playing around. Like, we're, yeah. we're serious. And I, I took that
1: as that, that pint was almost empty that they had been sort of drinking before they came over there. Like this, the son comes back, says, dad, the dad knows what's going on. Dad, they figured it out. We have to do something. They're probably just like, all right, let's just get, get ourselves ready. Because, you know, it was that great scene where they knock him out and they roll him over and they put the pillow on the back of uh, Kevin Bacon's head. And I'm like, oh, geez, you know, this is they they went over there for one reason and one reason only.
0: And again, if you and having caught it this time that Harry's a cop, you're like, well, he knows exactly how to cover this up, you know, because yeah. clearly he was part of the other cover up. And good old Maggie shows up to save the day, and we we you know earlier on we get the setup where she pulls Tom's knife out of his work bag so she can go see, you know, the the magical man tell her you know that he's a receiver and needs to you know come and talk to him some more or whatever. She's got that knife. We get a great fight. She stabs one of them in the foot. You know, I mean, it's it's getting bad. And Frank shows up at the last minute to gun them both down. And when he does, Harry gets off the shot that goes straight up through the floor and would have gone straight through where her kid was laying on the bed. And that's where we see the feather feathers fly. And I I mean, literally, I remember seeing that the first time and then watching it even this time. I dropped my pen. I was like, holy cow. This is so again, I use the back to the future reference. It's so back to the future tight here at the end.
1: That scene took my breath away when the the bullet just goes through the entire through the ceiling and through the bed and through the pillow. I was like, oh, like it's just that just that sort of deflated, like oh, that would have been terrible moment,
0: right? This, and and this we cut. You know what would undercut that would have been if we flash back to like I don't want to see the feathers, mommy. I'm like, see, lesser filmmakers would have done that, but ones that trust the audience will go like, and there's what that was about.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because I I definitely had that moment of realization where I was like, "Oh, those feathers!" Yeah, Yeah. right. It's just (laughs) same here. I I mean,
0: when he was saying that at the thing, I was like, "I don't what the hell is this kid talking about feathers? Maybe the down coat she was wearing. Like, I had totally forgotten about that."
2: Yeah, I thought it might have been like tied to the
1: coat. There's a great line before she leaves from the relatives' house where the kid says, "Don't forget your
2: purse, Mommy. You forgot this." Yeah, and that has the knife in it. That's right. Ah. yeah. Smart. I missed that one the first time through. I'm gonna I'm gonna end up rewatching this after we're done with the recording because I have still got it for another 24 hours from Amazon. <laughs> so I'm gonna watch it again for sure. As
1: as do I. I've got I've got it until probably uh, one o'clock tomorrow. So.
0: See, this movie begs that kind of thing, but we get the great ending here and we get them leaving. And there's such a cool moment when they're packing up the U-Haul trailer to, to get out of there in the station wagon where Kevin Bacon and Catherine Irby are just passing each other with boxes and they both pass each other and they don't have anything in their hands and they just kind of reach out and grab hands just for a sec, you know, just kind of go like, I'm with you, you know? And I, it's it's a little thing, but that kind of thing, I was like, see, that's what makes these characters believable and that you like them because they 're still on each other's side, you know, even after all of this, and they know, and now they 're probably even stronger together
1: if if this is the if we're we're talking about the end of the movie, I have to mention the one and this is such a minor critique of the film, but when you look at a like you said a jay as you described it as a script that 's so tight, I need the resolution of what happens to kevin dunn 's character. I need to know what happened to him. That's that's the one thing that I was left asking.
2: Yeah, that's definitely something I was left wondering about too. At the end of the movie, I was like, "Well, he did shoot a cop, so and they did. He did cover up a murder."
0: Yeah,
1: he's at he, the at the very least, he we're looking at accessory or you know aiding and abetting.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's definitely going down. I I'm with you. I kind of wonder what what happens to this guy at this point, but I think we know like he's going down and he knows he's going down, but he gets that great last line again. Like this is a decent neighborhood, you know, even in spite of all the horrific shit that has gone down and what will be alluded to as we get the very last scene here, he still believes that in his heart of hearts. And I'm like, well, this guy's going down for that. I mean, but I I took it as this guy knows he's going to prison. He he obviously wasn't going to kill himself. The gun's empty one, but, he he could reload or whatever. Like, nope. He's put the gun down. He's ready to accept his you know fate at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I would have I would have probably liked to have seen a little more resolution with uh, you know the the cop that met at the cemetery the the one Neil. that does the shining. Yeah, yeah. Neil, Neil. Maybe he
0: comes back and waves at Jake as they're driving away or something. I don't know. That yep. that would have been neat. Yep. Yeah, you could have seen something like that. I don't I don't know why it wasn't there. Maybe they could get the actor. Didn't think about it, but. I want to totally tighten it up. But we, we get our very last scene is him driving away in a car and you hear all these little whispers start coming and Jake just puts his hands over his ears like, Nope, not interested. And it's like every house. And I'm like, Oh, Holy shit. What a terrible thing. You get the idea that like Tom's mind is closed now, or that door is closed. Cause Samantha is, she trots off into the, you know, the spirit street or whatever. And he doesn't seem he seems to be okay now after all of that, but Jake is still very much a receiver. I
1: looked at that completely differently and I, I think you the way you saw it was correct because I've only seen it the one time. I just thought it was I, I didn't even think of that with every house someone was talking to. I just thought because he was able to receive now that all the spirits have now just been to, drawn to him. But I didn't I didn't see it from house to house. But that makes complete sense. Now I, that you say, it like I that mean, I'm I'm
0: just thinking, like, if Kepp is doing Kubrick, you know, that's what Kubrick would leave us with is like, well, we've solved this one mystery. Now, here are the 55 other murders in this great neighborhood. I exactly, don't know about exactly. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> so, and, it, you know, Chicago is probably on some Native American graves and stuff, too. So who knows? Right.
2: Yeah, that could very easily have been a mob neighborhood. So right, there, exactly. may be a, <laughs> there may be a lot of people under those brownstones.
0: It's definitely a union neighborhood. Okay, let's be clear. So there's there's all kinds of things under those brownstones. But guys, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for a stir of echoes? Dana.
1: First of all, I, I want to say thank you for recommending this film. I I've made no bones about it on my podcast that I'm I'm not the biggest fan of what comes out in theaters these days i'm not big on sequels prequels remakes i like original stories and that's that's what i really feed off when i when i want to see a good movie and this was i know it's based off of a book but but when i say original stories i mean like a theatrically released story that by the way would never come out today not r-rated that just wouldn't happen uh so just right off the bat uh, it was a really enjoyable experience to watch an original story now having said that uh, for a film that came out in 1999, you have to make the comparisons to The Sixth Sense, and we've had that discussion already. I think this is a far superior film to The Sixth Sense. I found myself so captivated. I remember right at about the 40-minute mark is when this movie really grabbed me because I had, I had paused it for a moment. I just happened to see that's where I had stopped at. I was going to see this movie through to the end no matter what, and I was – delighted I, I think i mentioned that the use of jump scares was minimal but effective i think too many movies today that try to do the supernatural thing that's all they bank on is doing jump scares the The few that are in this film were very effective the performances like we talked about were outstanding kevin bacon i mean he's 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 a one-of-a-kind actor and that is the ultimate compliment for him so if this is – and this is my first time on the show, so I'm doing the ratings. What you said, extra large is, is, the, is the best. Yep. I'm giving, I'm giving this an extra large just because it was a, an original story. It was competently made, beyond competently made. It was expertly made by a director, expertly written. Performances across the board were phenomenal, and it was a captivating story. So extra large popcorn for me.
2: Ron? Ron? I'm, I'm going to echo a lot of uh, Dana's comments. It was a really well-made movie. Katherine Irby and Kevin Bacon are both great. They had great chemistry. They had a great lived-in feel to their relationship. Uh, child actors can be really hit or miss, but I thought they they landed a really good one here. There was just enough creepy kid uh, to keep me interested, but not so much to to feel like they were leaning too heavily on the on the creepy kid trope. Um, So, yeah, I really dug it on first watch. Like I said, I'm going to watch it again, definitely. I could see why it is a frequent favorite and why Jay worked so hard to proselytize people in its favor. Uh, So I'm going to go go with a large popcorn here. It was a lot of fun. It was definitely probably the better version of The Sixth Sense, speaking of movies I haven't watched since they came out. Um, And, yeah, I... I really had a good time. I uh, Kevin Bacon alone caused me to uh, to watch three seasons of The Following, <laughs> uh, so I'm definitely down for any of uh, the bacon I can get.
0: <laughs> I'll say I'll say two <laughs> seasons of that are excellent. That last one, yeah. so, um, it goes a little sideways, but that's another another day maybe on uh, Donahue. Here. Um, guys, I'm just so excited that I was able to introduce something to both of you that you haven't seen because I, of anybody out there in the pod land, it's, it's hard for people to find stuff that I haven't seen and us to do it on the show. Um, It's really hard for me to think of something Ron hasn't seen or something I didn't think Dana would have seen. So that just blows me away that, that I was able to give you guys something you hadn't seen and that you both really liked it, too, because... I think I'm vindicated, and we've talked about it a lot here for the reasons you've said, that this is a superior movie experience to Sixth Sense. Because once you know Sixth Sense and you know the twist, the going back to that is only an academic experience anymore. It's can you see the clues? Can you pick up on that picture from 1958 and that's when the guy's you know, license plate, you know, whatever, Shyamalan is stuck in there. That's all you can really get out of that again. This movie, you can just watch over and over just as a movie experience. And it just—it's more fun now that you know how it's going to go. It's kind of like Usual Suspects for me in that way, in that I know how that movie ends, but I'll still rewatch it. Even as problematic as Kevin Spacey is nowadays, that's still a fantastic movie to watch and is a fun experience. And Stir of Echoes is the same way. I can't give as high praise for the book. I'll be honest—if you want to read the book and you're kind of into it, it's—it's it's probably worth it. it Maybe better in audio book form. I—I w- I would recommend doing that just as a you know sort of a side experiment. Uh, but this one for me is definitely one that I think you should see. It's one to seek out, and it is the superior of the two. And it's extra large popcorn territory for me as well. I will go ahead and put this out, though. I, I know neither of you have seen Stir Echoes 2 or Stir of Homecoming that Rob Lowe was in. This was a sci-fi channel, the direct-to-video thing. Let me just go ahead and put the word I can put on that, unwatchable. I tried to get through it, guys, and I just ended up skipping to the end because I was like, no, this is so bad. It's one of those that was another thing, and then the studio threw the name on it, and it just – it's similar kind of stuff, but it also deals with some really – I don't know, it – dips its toe into some real icky political stuff that it just doesn't need to. It muddies the water too much. And I'm sorry, Kevin Bacon is way better than Rob
2: Lowe. I'm glad you said that, uh, Jay, because last night Holly saw, ooh, stir of Echoes too." is that Rob Lowe? And I was like, yeah, that's Rob Lowe. She's like, I want to see it, but not for three, not for two ninety nine. It's not,
0: it's not worth ninety nine cents. Tell her what I told you. Just don't. Like, go as if it never existed, and you will be better off. It's one of those, um, as my friend John Jansen would say, never happened. And so, just just live like that, and you're better off.
1: I almost watched that today because when I was searching for the movie using uh, through the Xbox, I just you know started typing in stir of echoes, and two results came up. And I wasn't really paying attention. I clicked on Stir of Echoes two and I almost bought it. I almost I almost rented it. I got to right to the confirm page and I looked at it. I saw the the cover art and it just said Rob Lowe and I went, No, this is definitely not the right movie. I, I'm pretty sure Rob Lowe's not in Stir of Echoes and that just it <laughs> kind of clear it just kind of cleared up to me. I was like, Oh, oh okay, yeah. Stir of Echoes two. I'm, gotcha.
0: I'm so gotcha. thankful that whatever forces to be kept you from could you, that.
1: Could you imagine if I had just because like, I got to remember, I woke up this morning. I'm having my coffee. You know, I'm, I'm a little cloudy starting this process. And if I had, you know, started the movie, maybe missed the opening title crawl. And and literally went into it thinking that I was I just trying to see how awkward this podcast would have been you if were, I accidentally watched Stir of Echoes too. I'd have been like, guys, listen, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do this because I think we saw two different movies here.
0: Literally, we would have. It's uh, it's so bad. Like I I don't even want to tell the plot. it's just avoid it and don't don't go down that road for anyone. But Dana, thank you for being a part of this episode of Filmstrip. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Please tell folks again about your show and how they can find it and follow it.
1: Absolutely. And and thank you so much for having me on here. This was, this was just a great experience. I had a great time. Uh, the show, the Dana Buckler Show, is available wherever podcasts are found, including the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Heart Radio, Google Play, etc., Uh, If you want to follow the show on social media, we've got a Twitter page, which is at Dana Buckler Show. Uh, I'm personally on Twitter, at Dana Buckler. And we also just started an Instagram page, which is at the Dana Buckler Show. Gentlemen, it's it's been a pleasure talking to
2: both of you. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you again. And Ron, tell folks how they can follow you and your writing on the Internet.
2: Uh, You can find me at uh, denofgeek.com and denofgeek.us, among other places. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Ron. And I am writing a lot about TV. So if you wanna hear about TV, uh you know, check me out.
0: Your serialized TV stuff, you gotta follow Ron's writing over at Den of Geek. Normally we do at the very end of the show here we Talk about a podcast that we've been listening to and like, but I think it's pretty obvious that one this week is the Dana Buckler show. And so I, I'll give another recommend <laughs> as that. well. Having been a fan since the How Is This Movie days and until now, um, it's it's a, just a great show and it's a lot of fun. And Michael Scott, who's on there with you, and Ashley Schla- Schlafly, and you get Jim Hippo on, who's a director from time to time. Just the content on your show is fantastic, Dana, and I, I will echo what you said. People should definitely check that out. So do check out the show.
1: I appreciate you saying that. Thank you so much. That that means that means a ton. Thank yeah. you.
0: It is a, it is a real cool show. And again, that's the cool thing about, you know, the podcast world. And we've been doing this podcast for a long time and you've been one of our, our oldest friends in, in the pod family. I like to say and so it's so it's a lot of fun to have you on and to finally be able to, to do shows with you is a blast. So uh, glad you're on and we'll definitely uh, have you back again. The door is open if you ever want to come back in. So uh, we're not closing your mind off like uh, Kevin Bacon's at the end of this movie. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, folks again, thanks for joining us on this episode of film you can follow our show on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. You'll see a list of our entire archives there. Check us out on Facebook. Search for Filmstrip Podcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at Pod, or you can follow me at Jay Skipworth. Please leave us a positive review wherever you find the show and share the show episodes with folks. We appreciate the support. Until next time, for Ron and Dana Buckler, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip.
1: Thank you for listening to Filmstrip.